This is the My Dark Path podcast. There's a sign mounted on a locked door four decks down from the flight deck on the USS Ticonderoga, a giant aircraft carrier. A sign that reads, Restricted Security Area Keep Out, Authorized Personnel Only. It is unlawful to enter this area without written permission of the commanding officer. Now, no one except for the men assigned to work in that room were allowed to go through that door because behind that door are stored the nuclear bombs that Ticonderoga carried. And on the floor of that room, the bombs were assembled by the sailors in the weapons division. They trained to do so efficiently, rapidly, in case they were called upon to arm the bombs for use. The location is the Philippine Sea during the Vietnam War. The date is December 5th, 1965, and before this day is over, one of those nuclear weapons will be in the ocean, armed to go off with no way of recovering it or disarming it. Today, in our second part of this two-part series on broken arrows, or lost nuclear weapons, we'll explore the only armed nuclear bomb the United States lost and did not recover. All other weapons lost had fissile material but had not been primed to explode. The bomb lost by the Ticonderoga, those 57 years ago, still sits at the bottom of the Sea of Japan, still capable of detonating a full nuclear explosion. Hi, I'm M.F. Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. So if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. See our videos on YouTube, visit MyDarkPath.com, or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I hope you'll start checking out our videos on YouTube. I just released a brand new episode about UFOs and the Val Johnson incident. I hope you enjoy it. But no matter how you choose to connect with us and My Dark Path, I'm grateful for your support. Finally, thank you for listening and choosing to walk the dark paths of the world with me. Let's get started with episode 47, Lost in the Philippine Sea. Part 1 In our previous episode, we discussed a half a dozen nuclear weapons that were lost while on training exercises or when submarines sunk in water too deep to retrieve them from. Our first story today is unique because it is the only nuke the United States has lost that was actually armed and ready to be used when it was lost. In other words, this one was a fully capable weapon, ready to go off when we lost it. Although the world was horrified by the use of atomic weapons in the Second World War, American politicians actually debated and some even advocated for the use of nuclear bombs in Korea and Vietnam. Like Germany, Korea emerged from the Second World War divided. In early 1950, the intelligence community observed a buildup of Soviet-equipped troops north of the 38th parallel. On June 25th, a Sunday, troops from the communist North Korean government poured across the border and pushed far into what is now South Korea. 
the Korean War had officially begun. The war was fought with weapons from the Second World War, in some cases quite literally, with B-29 bombers that had flown over Japan five years before, now doing bombing runs over North Korea. President Truman was faced with a choice. While the Soviets had successfully tested a bomb in 1949, by the advent of the Korean War they still had not successfully dropped a bomb from a plane. The United States need only fear if a Soviet engineering crew spent a week building a tower, assembling a nuclear weapon on top, and setting it off where it sat. In other words, the Soviets had the bomb, but no real way to use it yet. So in July of 1950, President Truman ordered General Curtis LeMay, the head of Strategic Air Command, to send B-29s to the United Kingdom— so that the Soviets would see them within range of the Western Soviet Union as a warning. And the truth is, it was a bluff. The B-29s were not configured to carry nuclear weapons. Truman just wanted the Soviets to think twice about escalating in Korea. Remember, it was just two years before that the Soviets had blockaded Berlin and the United States used the former warplanes as a part of the Berlin airlift to deliver essential supplies to West Berlin. By 1949, the Allies were successfully supplying Berlin and could do so indefinitely, while the counter-blockade of East Germany was causing severe shortages, which the Russians feared might lead to public unrest and resistance to Soviet domination. So the Soviets ended the blockade, and by the end of 1949, Germany then formally and permanently separated into two nations, East Germany and West Germany, with West Berlin, an island of democracy in the heart of East Germany, with a highway that led from West Germany into the city. For later this year, I already have a terrific episode underway about the Berlin airlift and the story of the U.S. pilot who is still remembered to this day as the Candy Bomber. But back to our current topic, this situation in Korea was reminiscent of the tensions around the Soviet blockade, and the Korean War threatened again to inflame tensions between the Soviets and the West. By August of 1950, the North Korean forces, aided by the Chinese and the Soviets, had pushed the Western Allies and the South Korean Army almost to the very bottom of the Korean peninsula around Busan. Truman ordered atomic bombs and the bombers to carry them to Guam. Then, on September 15th, the Americans made a surprise amphibious assault at Incheon, 20 miles west of Seoul, and now the site of Seoul International Airport. A memorial to the invasion, which was led by General Douglas MacArthur, sits just inland from the coast where the invasion occurred. I visited the site called Memorial Hall. It features a rising staircase between two stone walls, reaching up to statues of three soldiers. It's a somber, respectful site that commemorates the 70 dead and 470 wounded during this amphibious assault that started to push back North Korea. By mid-October, the Americans had pushed all the way north to Pyongyang. The Chinese then countered by sending 200,000 soldiers to reinforce the North Korean army. Truman had sent nine atomic bombs to Guam, but after he fired General Douglas MacArthur, the president appointed General Matthew Ridgway to command the American forces in Korea. Ridgway was given qualified authority to use the bombs if he felt he had to. 
Although some politicians back in the United States encouraged the use of nuclear weapons in Korea to give the communists what for, cooler heads prevailed and the nukes were removed from Guam by 1952. The Korean War ended in a stalemate and ceasefire, but not a peace treaty. But the idea of using atomic weapons, if you have them, was still very much on the table for the United States, and for that matter, the Soviet Union. A number of American congressmen publicly called for the use of atomic weapons against North Korea and China during the Korean War. Congressman James E. Van Zant from Pennsylvania went on national television and said, quote, We should not only use the atomic bomb in Korea, but we should use it north of the Yalu River in Manchuria. I think there are several targets in northern Korea we could use for the atomic bomb. We should destroy and contaminate them. End quote. In the same year, Representative Lloyd Benson of Texas, a Democrat who would go on to serve four terms in the Senate and be Michael Dukakis's vice presidential running mate in their unsuccessful 1988 campaign, suggested on national television that the president should send a list to the leaders of North Korea of cities in North Korea that would be bombed by the U.S. Air Force with atomic weapons if they did not withdraw to north of the 38th parallel within one week. It seems hard to believe now, but nuclear threats were regularly a part of political discourse in the 50s and 60s. And while the strikes in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were horrific, they ultimately saved millions of lives on both the U.S. and Japanese sides by forcing the capitulation of the Japanese army. But at this later date, a nuclear attack would seem to be destined to unleash a horrible global escalation of nuclear conflict. From 1960 to 1968, SAC adopted a policy of requiring nuclear weapons to be ready to go within 15 minutes of the order being given to use them. While missiles for both land and submarine use were being developed, the bomber was still the center and biggest share of the nuclear triad. If the Soviets launched their planes, then ours needed to be in the air in less than a quarter of an hour to launch a counterattack. Pilots were on 24-hour alert and could be called up at any time. Crews were kept in the air for prolonged periods, refueling tens of thousands of feet above the Earth to keep them aloft longer than a single tank of fuel would allow. To keep up with brutal hours, many of the pilots and crew took amphetamines, now, this is not to disparage those individuals who are tasked with keeping America safe, just a reminder of the often inhuman conditions in which they were expected to work. Remember this, as it will come back to haunt us later in this episode. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. John F. Kennedy's administration is known for perhaps the greatest major nuclear standoff, the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviets had wanted to place nuclear missiles in Cuba, so Kennedy ordered a blockade 
to prevent the missiles from reaching Cuba. For three days, the world thought a nuclear war was inevitable, but then Khrushchev blinked and the Soviet ships turned around and left. Less well-known, perhaps, is the -the behind-the-scenes nuclear negotiations that paralleled American involvement in Vietnam. The American military feared a missile gap and insisted on a rapid increase in the production of nuclear weapons and the missiles to deliver them. The irony was that there was a missile gap, but all on the Soviet side. In 1961, when Kennedy took office, the Soviet Union did not have a single functioning intercontinental ballistic missile. They were also having trouble shrinking their hydrogen bomb to a size small enough so that it could fit atop a missile. But in 1962, Curtis LeMay asked for at least 2,400 Minuteman missiles. Thomas Powers of the Strategic Air Command had asked for 10,000. All were designed to be unleashed in a single devastating attack known as the Single Integrated Operating Plan, or SIOP, which also oversaw the use of the bombers. Now, Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963, and tangentially, it's worth a listen in our Season 1, Episode 22, called Reflections of JFK. Johnson was sworn in on Air Force One while flying back to Washington and inherited the responsibility for America's nuclear forces and the growing tensions in Vietnam. By 1964, there were 24,000 American advisors in Vietnam, with President Johnson vowing to escalate our presence in order to turn the tide against communism. By the end of 1965, there were over 200,000 American troops in the country. Navy ships were moving large numbers of soldiers to bases in Vietnam, as well as serving as launching points for bombing runs and submarine hunts. In the last quarter of 1965, the USS Ticonderoga had spent a month launching missions against targets in Vietnam. The near-constant activity could wear a crew out. And while films like Top Gun glorify the pilots who fly off of aircraft carriers— The crew who work the deck, called the gang on the roof by the folks below deck, have dozens of ways to be hurt or even killed in the daily performance of their duties. You can get sucked into an engine intake, jet exhaust can blow you overboard, or into the path of another plane before you even know what's happening. Propellers can decapitate or dismember, a jet landing short or striking the edge of the landing strip on the deck can throw flaming debris and burning jet fuel all over the deck. Rotor wash from helicopters can throw any loose items on deck around, not to mention aerosolizing any and all of the many fluids that regularly spill on deck. Fuel, oil, hydraulic fuel, etc. Not to mention the need for ear protection as the sounds of jets taking off rapidly on a short deck rise to the levels of decibels that can permanently damage hearing. And on top of all of that, one has the weather and the sea to contend with. An aircraft carrier is huge, but a good storm will still cause it to roll and ride the waves. A good wind can push things and people across the deck. So pilots may get the glory, but the deck crew are the hard-working professionals who need to perform like clockwork under dangerous conditions to make sure pilots can even get into the air. Now, in our last episode, we talked about the variety of planes created to carry nuclear weapons. The B-29, the B-36, the B-47 Stratojet, 
and of course the Flying Fortress, the B-52. But by the 60s, engineers had been able to shrink the bomb and in doing so could design a much smaller plane to deliver nuclear weapons. And one of the most popular was the A-4 Skyhawk. It was the primary American attack aircraft over North Vietnam for the first half of that war. The A-4 Skyhawk was a delta-winged, single turbojet-engined attack aircraft designed and built by Douglas Aircraft, a rival of Boeing, who had done most of the bombers up until that point in time. The Navy had wanted a plane that minimized size, weight, and complexity, but could still deliver a payload of several bombs. The Skyhawk succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. It was so compact that it did not even need to fold its wings when on an aircraft carrier, yet it was capable of carrying two large bombs under each wing. Pilots and crews referred to the Skyhawk in a wide variety of nicknames, Scooter, the Kitty Car, and Tinker Toys. But at the start of the Vietnam War, it was the bombing plane of choice for the American Navy. Unlike the larger bombers of the 40s and 50s, which required crews of up to a dozen and a half men, the Skyhawk was a single pilot plane. One man flew the plane, pushed the button, and dropped the bombs. And in the early 60s, those Skyhawk pilots, like those on the USS Ticonderoga, trained with atomic bombs. By that time, the closest that the United States had come to deploying nuclear weapons in Vietnam was in early 1954, when the French garrison at Den Ben Phu was in danger of being overrun by an independence movement led by communist Viet Minh forces. Then President Eisenhower and his military advisors discussed using atomic weapons to help the French and stop the communists in their tracks. In the end, Eisenhower decided against their use because he did not want to provoke an international outcry and was not convinced that atomic weapons would be effective against a dispersed fighting force like the Vietnamese guerrillas, nor that an atomic bomb would save the French garrison. President Johnson would again revisit the idea of nuclear weapon use in Vietnam in 1968. On February 1st of that year, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Earl Wheeler, sent a message to General William Westmoreland, head of the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam, recommending that he investigate the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons to break the siege of Khun San. Again, the American government decided against the use of atomic weapons. Richard Nixon became the final president to consider the use of nuclear bombs against the North Vietnamese, threatening to bomb Hanoi as Saigon was falling. Again, not wishing to unleash the nuclear genie from the bottle, cooler heads prevailed. However, the entire time the United States was in Vietnam, the Navy and Air Force carried out practice drills using real bombs, and that is how the only broken arrow with a fully armed bomb came about. Part 2 On December 5, 1965, the aircraft carrier, the USS Ticonderoga, called Tico, or Big T, by her crews, had completed a month of bombing runs into North Vietnam. The crew of sailors and airmen were due for R&R in Japan. But there is no rest for a military at war, however. 
Stationed in the Philippine Sea about 70 miles from Okinawa, Japan, the crew of the Tico continued their regular rotation of training and drills. Lieutenant Douglas M. Webster, a young pilot from Ohio, was scheduled for a routine weapons-loading drill and simulated mission. Just 24 years old, he had been made a lieutenant, junior grade, a year ago to the day on December 5, 1964. He was on his first combat tour in Vietnam, having just flown 17 missions in the last three weeks, sometimes as many as three a day. The pilots and crew alike were exhausted. They were working 16-hour days in the tropical heat. At 1,300 hours or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, behind that restricted door I began this episode telling you about, the crew assembled a live B-43 one-megaton thermonuclear bomb as a part of the drill. The B-43 was a variable yield, or so-called dial-a-yield, airdropped thermonuclear weapon, and it was set for a one megaton yield. Should the call come from up top, bombs very much like this one would be placed on planes such as the A-4 Skyhawk and be sent directly to the heart of North Vietnam. The training exercise for the day involved the assembly of the nuclear weapons, which would then be brought into the number two hangar and loaded onto Skyhawks that were also there for training. The planes would then be brought to the flight deck via the number two aircraft elevator, with pilot and weapons successfully installed on board. The training exercise would then involve Webster and the other pilots training on atomic weapon delivery by taking off, flying around, and then landing back on deck where the crew would take the planes back down to Hangar 2 and remove the bombs. But that did not happen on this afternoon. The Skyhawks have a low-slung yellow tractor called a mule. These are used to move the planes around and can also serve as a means to anchor the plane or used as brakes to stop the plane from moving. All of the Skyhawks had them that afternoon, except for Webster's. His plane, the first in line, was missing its mule. Ordinarily, the plane and mule would be loaded onto the elevator, brought to the deck, brought to the catapult on the deck that helps launch the planes quickly into the air. But without a mule, the Skyhawk had to be pushed by the crew by hand, with two external fuel tanks and a nuclear bomb attached, not to mention the pilot. The entire plane weighed close to 12 tons. According to Jim Winchester, the trainee crew that was working that afternoon had little experience in this particular drill, as they had been working with conventional bombs, not nuclear ones, and many were literally new to the aircraft, as the Tico had been understaffed and had been training a new crew. An inexperienced crew working 18-hour days while learning new procedures that required attention to detail and precise movement is, of course, a recipe for disaster. Word came from the flight deck that they were ready for the first plane. Webster strapped himself in and gave a thumbs up. Now remember, the A-4, like most planes, does not have power steering, nor is it really equipped to be driven like a car. It is designed to fly. The men pushed the plane forward onto the elevator, which rose up to the flight deck. Upon arrival at the flight deck, the Skyhawk rolled out of the elevator and the crew began to frantically wave at Webster, calling on him to hit the brakes. Chief Petty Officer Delbert Mitchell, who was on the crew that loaded the bomb onto the Skyhawk, told the U.S. Naval Institute in 2019, quote, According to testimony during the post-incident Board of Inquiry investigation, 
the pilot seemed oblivious to the whistles and was looking down, end quote. A deckhand signaled to him to hold the brakes and the other crew attempted to hold onto the plane to prevent it from moving. One crewman got a chalk down in front of one wheel and thus they managed to pivot the Skyhawk in place, but then it hit the netting on the side of the elevator. Now the net is designed to prevent sailors from falling, but not a 12-ton fighter jet. The Skyhawk broke through and rolled to the edge of the aircraft carrier. Immediately, pilot, plane, and bomb toppled over the side of the Ticonderoga into the ocean, sinking immediately to the bottom of the Philippine Sea. The plane had tipped upside down as it fell from the deck, so the last image anyone had of Lieutenant Webster and his plane was the white belly of the jet as it sank, the nuclear weapon strapped to the centerline of the bottom of the plane, and it was the final thing to vanish from view. The ship's weapon officer ran to a phone to alert command that a man, a plane, and a bomb were overboard and to start a rescue mission immediately, but it was far too late. The aircraft quickly sank, preventing Webster from escaping. The waters in the area are roughly three miles deep. The Navy called in other ships to aid in what was quickly determined to be a search and recovery effort. They only ever found Webster's helmet. The aircraft, the remains of the pilot, and the weapon have never been recovered. The other thing that the Navy did immediately was a cover-up. The Navy reported the incident to Congress a year later when the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy was studying the shocking number of broken arrows. But this committee and its work was top secret, and details of the incident were not made public until 1989. Just like off the coast of New Jersey, off the coast of Tybee Island, Georgia, on some North Carolina farm, and somewhere in the Mediterranean, All incidents we discussed in our last episode, somewhere in the South Pacific, in the Philippine Sea, a nuclear bomb sits on the ocean floor. Part 3 As the United States began to develop better means to deliver nuclear weapons, most notably submarines and missiles, the military sought to maintain the bomber fleet at the center of the nuclear triad. But two crashes after the Ticonderoga incident convinced the brass to reduce America's reliance on bombers as the primary means of waging nuclear war. Operation Chrome Dome was the name of the plan which kept 12 strategic bombers in the air at all times between 1960 and 1968. The dozen B-52s would fly patterns near points outside the Soviet Union, ready to head to their targets within the USSR at the given signal. If you've ever seen the film Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, Stanley Kubrick's satire on the Cold War arms race, the plane in that film is an example of America's approach to keeping planes aloft around the clock and going in if a Russian attack was expected. By 1966, three separate chrome dome mission routes were being flown, one east over the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, another north through Baffin Bay, and a third over Alaska and the Pacific. All three routes kept planes circling the same path, often over other nations, in a state of readiness for prolonged periods. 
but it was two chrome dome crashes that effectively ended the reign of the bomber as nuclear king. The first crash occurred in 1966, less than a year after Lieutenant Douglas Webster and an armed nuclear weapon sank to the bottom of the Philippine Sea. At 10.30 in the morning on January 17, 1966, in the fishing village of Palmares, in the municipality of Cuevas del Almanzora, Almeria, Spain, the fishermen looked up from their shrimp boats to see two giant fireballs falling toward the village and a twisted white shape with something hanging from it drift down rapidly and sink below the waves. The fireballs struck near the village, debris and body parts falling around the area, and buildings shook from the impact. The villagers had just seen a mid-air collision between two American planes, one of which carried nuclear weapons. The B-52G began its mission from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina and carried four B-28FI thermonuclear bombs. The European Chrome Dome route required flying across the Atlantic and then the Mediterranean, then north outside the European border of the Soviet Union and its client states in the southeast of Europe. And then it would circle around and fly back over the Atlantic. This long route required two mid-air refuelings over Spain, one in each direction, in order to complete the mission. On its return leg over the Mediterranean, the B-52 commenced its second aerial refueling with a KC-135, a straddle-lifter refueling flying tanker plane. Something, though, went wrong, and the two planes collided. Four of the seven crew members of the bomber, the commander, pilot, co-pilot, and navigator, managed to parachute to safety. But the other three crew, as well as all four members of the KC-135, were killed in the explosion. Three of the nuclear bombs were found on land near the village. They were part of that debris that had rained down in full view of the fishermen. The non-nuclear explosives in two of the weapons detonated upon impact with the ground, resulting in the contamination of a square mile area with radioactive plutonium. The fourth bomb fell into the Mediterranean. The three on land were recovered by the American military within 24 hours of the incident. But a few weeks after the crash, Philip Myers, a bomb disposal officer at the Naval Air Facility in Sicily, was told he was being given a top-secret assignment in Spain. Perhaps with a sardonic smile, he responded that the assignment was not really that secret. The media in Italy and Spain had been reporting about the mid-air collision and presumed lost nuclear bomb since it had happened. Meyer's job was to aid in the recovery and disarming of the bomb that had fallen into the Mediterranean. So after arriving in Palmares, he then had to wait for two more weeks for his equipment to arrive, but then the team went to work in earnest. Using a cutting-edge deep-ocean submarine that was able to dive to unprecedented depths, the team was able to search the seafloor for the bomb. On March 1st, the team found a track cut in the seabed where the bomb had first landed, and from there they found the bomb, entangled in its parachute, pushed deep into the silt. That bomb was the twisted white shape that the villagers had seen drift into the ocean, the other bombs, not deploying their parachutes, had landed directly below the crash site. But locating the broken arrow was only half the battle. Now, Meyer's job as a bomb disposal specialist was to figure out how to safely secure and raise the bomb 
which sat over a half a mile down off the coast of Spain. Meyer secured the bomb with nylon rope, but the parachute made it very difficult to lift. The flowing current pulled the parachute in one direction while the military team attempted to raise the bomb. Suddenly, the rope snapped and the bomb sank even deeper into the ocean. Eventually, two and a half months after the search began, another remote sub was finally able to lift the bomb by its parachute and bring it to the surface, where the disposal experts discovered that the casing had shifted and that they could not disarm the bomb in the usual manner, which was through a design port in the side of the bomb that was specifically designed to allow friendlies to disarm it. Instead, the officers had to drill a hole in the side of the casing without setting off the conventional explosives within the bomb or even the nuke itself. Arguably, this job might be the most nerve-wracking one we've talked about yet in this series. The fallout, if you'll pardon the pun, was immediate. The Spanish government told NATO and the United States that they could no longer fly any plane in Spanish airspace if that plane was carrying nuclear weapons or nuclear material. American prestige had also taken a hit, but some of the consequences of the crash were much more long-term. The area around Palmares is still contaminated by the bombs that crashed and cracked open on land. Zaria Gorvet reported that, quote, some of the U.S. military personnel who helped with the initial cleanup efforts that involved shoveling the surface of the soil into barrels have since developed mysterious cancers, which they believe are linked. In 2020, a number of the survivors filed a class action suit against the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, though many of the claimants are currently in their late 70s and 80s, end quote. Similarly, the residents of Palmares have also reported higher incidents of cancers and other radiation-linked diseases. The second incident occurred two years after the Palmares crash, this time in Greenland. Called the Thule event, the Thule affair, or the Thule accident, depending on with whom you are speaking, the crash of the B-52 on January 21st was due to human error and was the incident that ended Operation Chrome Dome and changed America's approach to long-range bomber flights. Planes on the North American route for the Operation Chrome Dome flew from Shepard Air Force Base in North Texas or other Central or Eastern Air Force bases along the American East Coast, up to Maine, then around the coast of Newfoundland, flying over Baffin Bay and Thule Air Force Base in Greenland, along the Arctic Circle in Northern Canada, down Alaska, and then down the west coast of the United States to return to Texas. On January 21, 1968, a B-52G Stratofortress left Plattsburgh Air Force Base in New York to fly the Chrome Dome route. Callsign Hobo 28 and her crew of seven took off and headed north when it developed a fire on board while over Greenland. The cause of the in-flight fire still seems highly unusual, It was a particularly cold day, and the crew had struggled to keep warm as they flew north. They decided to open an engine bleed valve to direct additional heat to the cabin. The problem was that the cabin then grew uncomfortably hot. And as anyone who's ever driven a car on a cold winter day knows, maintaining the right temperature and not being too cold or too hot is a real struggle, usually resulting in the constant adjustment of the car's heat controls. 
To deal with this while in flight, one of the crew members stuffed some seat cushions in front of a heating vent in an attempt to keep warm but not too hot. These cushions caught fire. The crew could neither land nor put out the fire. The smoke quickly became so thick that the crew had to eject. Six of the crew members parachuted to safety, but sadly, one suffered a fatal head injury while exiting the plane. Now pilotless, the flaming B-52 crashed into the sea ice in the North Star Bay approximately seven miles west of Thule Air Base, 700 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Hobo 28 had been carrying four B-28FI thermonuclear bombs when it crashed. On impact, the conventional explosive components of the four nuclear bombs all detonated, spreading parts of the B-52, the bombs, and radioactive material over a wide area. Fortunately, the fissile material was not triggered and there was no nuclear explosion, but the extreme heat from the explosion and the burning jet fuel melted the ice, resulting in the wreckage and munitions sinking into the ocean below. Individuals from Thule made their way to the crash site immediately and were joined later by others from the United States. Together, they rescued survivors and began the process of attempting to clean up the radioactive mess. As they reconstructed the bombs, they found three of them, but found that one warhead was still missing. Apparently, it had drilled its way into the ice of North Star Bay in the Arctic Ocean and remains there to this day, joining the Broken Arrows in the Philippine Sea, the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Mediterranean on the bottom of the seafloor. At least five nuclear weapons sit to this day under tons of water all over the world. Just as the Palomares incident resulted in tense relations between Spain, the United States, and NATO, the Thule incident severely strained American relations with Denmark, which, then as now, owns Greenland. The situation was made even more difficult as Denmark had announced in 1957 that the nation would be a nuclear-free zone, a policy which had prohibited the presence of any nuclear weapons in Denmark or its territories. The crash revealed that the United States had been violating that policy by flying nuclear bombs over Danish airspace regularly. Further straining relations, the United States and Denmark disagreed just on how to deal with Hobo 28's wreckage and radioactivity. The Americans wanted to just let the bomber wreckage sink into the fjord and remain there, but Denmark wouldn't allow that. Denmark wanted all of the wreckage gathered up immediately and moved, along with all of the radioactively contaminated ice, to the United States. Since the United States' ability to maintain Thule Air Base hung in the balance, the United States reluctantly agreed to Denmark's commands. But the last warhead, as I noted before, lies somewhere in the ice or the waters of the Arctic, under or near Greenland. Its location remains unknown to this day. The Palomares and the Thule incidents, coming in rapid succession, represent the only cases of conventional explosives of American nuclear bombs accidentally detonating and dispersing nuclear materials. After these incidents, the policy of keeping nuclear bombers in the sky at all times flying over Allied territory was politically untenable, and U.S. military policy placed far greater emphasis on the two other branches of the nuclear triad, land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles launched from silos in the continental United States 
and submarine-based missiles and nuclear-tipped torpedoes instead. Bombers were kept in use, but the many incidents we've discussed in these two episodes, with the Thule accident as the icing on the cake, convinced the government and military that bombers were the least reliable delivery vector for nuclear weapons, with the potential for incidents and accidents far too high. The irony is that in 2017, Thule Air Base received an upgrade for its radar systems, due in part to increased concern about Russia as a nuclear threat, and also because of worries about recent Russian military foyers into the Arctic. Although its importance as a base for nuclear bombers ended in 1968, Thule Air Base remains indispensable to American defense against nuclear weapons. An environmental team studied the radiation levels in North Star Bay and the surrounding fjords in 2003 and discovered low levels of radiation to still be present, even after 35 years. The levels were not high enough to be dangerous, but high enough to be detectable. No visible evidence of the crash remained, but the telltale radioactivity still lingers and most likely will for years. Part 4 The good news is that none of the bombs still missing sitting in the silt on the ocean floor is likely to explode. The bad news is that at least a dozen or so nuclear weapons still sit in the ocean, with salt water slowly corroding them. They are all probably long past the point of detonating, but the nuclear material is still there, waiting to slip into the water. The half-life of fissile uranium, the kind used in weapons, is 4.5 billion, yes, that's billion with a B, years, or roughly the current age of the solar system. In double the age of the solar system, another 4.5 billion years, the uranium in those bombs will have lost half of its radioactivity. Depending on the isotope, plutonium has a half-life between 87 years and 24,000 years. As in the North Star Bay, decades after a broken arrow, the radiation in the area might still be at elevated levels. And despite the far greater reliance on ICBMs, that is, intercontinental ballistic missiles, launched from the United States and capable of delivering warheads to anywhere inside the Soviet Union, America still has its strategic bombing fleet. According to the Department of Defense, though it is the smallest leg of the nuclear triad, the United States still maintains a nuclear bomber wing consisting of 46 nuclear-capable B-52H Stratofortresses and 20 B-2A Spirit aircraft. The United States also controls government and military functions during an emergency on board of one of four Boeing E-4 Advanced Airborne Command Posts, collectively referred to as Nightwatch or perhaps more popularly known as the Doomsday Plane. These four planes have state-of-the-art communication systems, which are hardwired against electromagnetic pulses, and they also possess five-mile-long low-frequency antenna that can be trailed behind the plane. There are no windows beside the cockpit to protect the communication systems from outside heat or an electromagnetic pulse. The planes are designed to serve as mobile command centers that can stay aloft during a nuclear war and communicate with anyone, anywhere on the planet. 
But these planes are aging, and so the Air Force just announced last year that they have begun developing a replacement for the E-4. The new platform is currently known as the Survivable Airborne Operations Center, but is still years from actually going into service. The Night Watch also serves practical functions outside of nuclear war. During natural disasters, when phone lines are down and cell towers are destroyed, the plane has served as a communication center, allowing for state governments and governors to contact relevant federal agencies and create a hub for first responders to reach each other. The government has also finally learned from the human errors that tend to grow exponentially when a crew is on extremely long and challenging missions without sufficient breaks in between. All crew assigned to the night watch follow a rotation of two weeks on alert, then four weeks on the ground on assignment at their respective bases. And yet, we still have a few dozen lost nuclear weapons, mostly in the ocean, but some, as in the Greenboro incident, they're buried in the earth and unable to be found. Experts believe the environmental impact of these broken arrows are negligible, especially those on the ocean floor and any significant increase in radiation due to a leaking bomb would have been picked up by now and would have subsequently dissipated in the ocean currents. These weapons are also considered to be safe from recovery by bad actors, as it would be less expensive to develop and produce your own bomb than to try to recover one from three miles down that might not even work when you found it. Besides, if the most advanced technologies wielded by the largest militaries in the world cannot find and recover these weapons, what hope does even a well-funded terrorist group have? But these expert opinions also display a bit of naivete. Nothing is a problem until it is, and these things are only impossible until someone actually does them. Then they become very possible. Much nuclear policy, oddly, is based on optimism and the idea that if it is not a problem immediately, then it will never be a problem. This may be revealed someday to be wishful thinking. For several decades, the Titanic was considered lost and unrecoverable, but then it has since been located and items from it even brought to the surface. Lieutenant Douglas Webster's Skyhawk and its thermonuclear bomb are lost under three miles of water, but that does not mean they always will be. Perhaps the final concern is that these incidents all demonstrate the same thing— that despite the best equipment, the best training, and highly motivated and intelligent crews, nuclear weapons can and have been lost. At least 32 times, several of which we've highlighted in these episodes, the handlers have lost control of a nuclear device. While the reduced use of bombers has diminished the number of broken arrow incidents, as I've said before, what can be had can also be lost— and we are not immune to the same forces that cause these accidents and mishaps. It is not a question of if, but when, the next Broken Arrow incident happens. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host, and I produce this show with our creative director, Dom Purdy. This story was prepared for us by My Dark Path staff writer, Kevin Whitmore. Big thank yous to them and the entire My Dark Path team. 
please take a moment and give My Dark Path a rating and a review wherever you're listening. It really helps the show, and I appreciate your feedback so much. I hope you'll also consider subscribing to My Dark Path Plus on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you'll have access to an exclusive subscriber-only episode. We already have a back catalog of episodes all about the hidden topics of history, science, and paranormal from the Soviet era. We call it Secrets of the Soviets. I have just a few more episodes left in the miniseries, including one about the most haunted buildings in Moscow and another about the psychic research at the Moscow Academy of Sciences. But no matter how you choose to connect with me and my dark path, I'm grateful for your support. Thanks again for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. Until next time, good night.